Welcome to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast, hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education is important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. It is another edition of The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. My name is Greg Frank. I am sitting this one out as well as we will get to Mike Niemer, eRenewable CEO, and his guest in just a minute. But let's hear from Mike's wife, Anne, eRenewable COO, as Anne has a few words for us to lead things off here on this edition of The Green Insider. So here's Anne to get things started. Anne Niemer here, COO of eRenewable. We know today whether you're a public company, private equity, or privately held company, ESG and sustainability are important to your company. At eRenewable, we can help you achieve some of those goals. If you have any questions or need any assistance with regards to reaching your sustainability goals, please visit us at eRenewable.com to learn more. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Welcome to The Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am Mike Niemer, and today our guest is the renowned Lauren Steffi, who's uh, been writing in, for business and energy and for many, many years. And so we're so glad to have Lauren back on our show. He was originally on episode 79. And now this is episode 196. How about that, Lauren? We've grown a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. And so thank you so much for joining us. You know, for those of you that don't know Lauren, he's a uh, writer at large for Texas Monthly and an, and an author. And so uh, he's got many books that he's published. And we'll talk about that a little later in the show. A uh, little up front, what we want to talk about first is carbon capture and what's going on in the state of Texas. Lauren, why don't you kind of give us an update and let's kind of go back and forth a little bit on that. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, the big thing that's being talked about right now with regards to carbon capture is how to regulate it. And um, there's been, you know, uh, the Railroad Commission has basically been trying to convince the feds to let them take over regulation of carbon capture in the state. This is something that already happened in Wyoming and North Dakota, uh, where, you know, the industries are, are a lot smaller. Um, and I think, you know, my concern there is is kind of it, it has more to do with the Railroad Commission than it does with the concept. Um, and that is, you know, it is the Railroad Commission, you know, a competent regulator, because quite frankly, you know, from a certainly from a public health standpoint, as far as the public's concerned, um, you know, there's been a lot of lapses in their in their regulatory capabilities over the years. And um, so I, I think kind of the the gist of where I come down on that is, you know, the, this is not the time to be expanding the Railroad Commission's regulatory authority, uh, because it can't keep up with what they already have on their plate. Well, you know, that's exactly right. You know, the title Railroad Authority is kind of misleading, because unless you're really in the energy markets, you're thinking they're just working on the railroad, right? Right. right. Um, and, and, you know, that that's actually, it is, it is surprising. You know, I've, I've spent most of my career in news media and, and, you know, around the energy business and things like that. And so, you know, to me, you know, the railroad commission, it's kind of this quirk of Texas government where the regulatory authority for oil and gas grew out of, you know, regulation of the railroads, but the railroad commission hasn't rail, regulated any railroads. And I don't know, a hundred plus years, probably more than 150 years, uh, but they kept the name. And unfortunately, that confuses a lot of voters. And so even though the railroad commissioners are elected directly by the public, most of the public doesn't vote in those elections. So they don't really know 
what the agency is or what it does. Um, and I think that that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, one of the things I've talked about uh, since the, the big freeze of, of 2021 is the need for a combined railroad commission, public utility commission, where we would have kind of a Texas, a Texas energy commission, if you would, that would not only regulate the oil and gas industry, but also electric utilities, uh, renewable power, and, and the way all of these things come together um, with an eye towards, you know, making sure that the public is well served, that, you know, the lights stay on and, and the gas flows when we need it and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it, 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 is a, it is sort of a convoluted mess uh, when it comes to the Railroad Commission in both its name and, and its duties. Well, yeah, and uh, am I right? Is there three seats or five seats on the Railroad Commission? There's three. There's, There's three. three. And so, uh, uh, you know, you don't always have all Democrats. You don't always have all Republicans. Sometimes they're split. Uh, but uh, it does create confusion within the state. And so when you referred to earlier, uh, two different states, uh, Wyoming and Montana, is that who you said? Uh, North Dakota. North Dakota, North Dakota uh, that the, the state runs the carbon capture programs there. How successful have those small states been trying to do that? Do you know that answer? Well, it, it's so far, I mean, it, it's relatively early days, but it's working out okay. Um, again, the industries are smaller in those states. And, and you know, the argument here is that um, the, the, the feds, the EPA, doesn't really have the staff to monitor all these projects that are in the pipeline. And so, therefore, it's kind of gumming up the works. It's taking too long to get things approved and stuff like that. And so the Railroad Commission, which tends to react at the behest of, of the oil and gas industry, has been really kind of pushing to, to you know, let us do it, let us do it. And, um, you know, I, I just think that it's, it's a good time to sort of take a pause and ask ourselves whether that might be the best way to handle this. Um, you know, we do, we do need to get these projects approved. We need to get them moving forward, but we also need to make sure we've got the proper oversight in place. Yeah, you know, oversight's everything, whether it's uh, uh, being able to get uh, whatever uh, license on time or permits on time. You know, we got to be able to get things moving, you know, like the grid's backed up with people trying to get it, the interconnection notices, right? All That's not just here. That's all across the country. We face the same things. And so, so many of these committees we're seeing more and more. They're asking for more, more regulations for them to have, but that doesn't really help the consumer because everything gets bogged down. And so, you know, carbon capture is you know, two of the buzzwords now, right? Uh, yeah, along with uh, reducing methane and so on and so forth, right? So uh, I don't know what we can do to, uh, to make it better. I don't profess that I can, I have the knowledge to do that, but I know that gridlock is on its way if they also take this in addition to what they already have. Yeah, I mean, look, anytime you have an, an oversight commission, uh, you know, any any sort of government oversight, you're always trying to walk this line between effective regulation and not being a roadblock to innovation, right? And government doesn't do that very well. It usually it usually winds up being a roadblock, whether it intends to or not, just because it can't keep up with the, the flow of, of requests and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, we're sort of starting to see that with carbon capture. There's a lot more of these projects in the works, more coming down the pike. Um, but, you know, you, you mentioned methane, and that's another perfect example of where the Railroad Commission has done a very poor job of regulating methane releases. They're essentially not regulating methane releases in West Texas. And so, um, you know, we're wasting 
a tremendous amount of energy uh, in the Permian Basin right now, enough to probably power the whole state on an annual basis, uh, is how much, you know, methane is being lost out there. Um, and that doesn't even get into the issue of, you know, flaring and things like that. So there's a lot of areas where, you know, quite frankly, the Railroad Commission could be doing a much better job. And I just don't think it's time to give them one other thing to do. Um, that said, I mean, we clearly need some sort of solution. You know, the EPA needs to be able to hire more people or whatever to to make sure that, you know, the carbon capture projects are moving forward because that's an important part of, you know, dealing with climate change and, and fossil fuels and that sort of thing. No, that's exactly right. I think I saw an article the other day about uh, how not all the abandoned wells in Texas have actually been plugged and they have methane being released into the environment because they haven't been plugged. I mean, that's not rocket science to go do that, is it, Lawrence? Uh, you know, it, it's not rocket science, but it is, a, it is also a very daunting task. And this is another area where the Railroad Commission has kind of fallen behind. They have not kept up with the number of orphan wells, uh, you know, the, or, or zombie wells, as they're called. You know, the Chronicle, the Houston Chronicle just had a, a big story about zombie wells. And, and these are, you know, basically abandoned wells that, that the companies have, have gone out of business, uh, you know, or, or for whatever reason, they don't have the resources to plug wells that, that they've abandoned. Um, it's one thing when we know the wells are there and we know they haven't been plugged properly or, or, you know, there's nobody, there's nobody left to kind of, you know, hold responsible for it. But the other part of the problem is that there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of wells. We don't even know where they are because they were drilled a hundred, 130 years ago. And there was just no records that were kept or the records got destroyed in some way or whatever. And so, um, you know, scary thing, if you're a landowner in certain parts of the state, you may have wells on your property you don't even know about, and they can they can start bubbling up and releasing, you know, toxic water, chemicals, kind of, all kinds of things. And uh, it becomes a big problem because then the question is, who's going to pay for it? And that's actually an area where in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the Biden administration uh, allocated some funding for... Um, different programs, again, in different states to actually hire unemployed oil and gas workers and put them to work plugging some of these wells. Uh, so, you know, that money has not really matriculated through uh, Texas at this point, but I, I think that it's it, it's on its way. And um, that can be a big help with, with uh, solving some of that. But yeah, it, you know, again, um, oil companies have not really, the, the money that they put up when they drill a well to cover uh, you know, plugging costs and stuff. If there's a problem down the road, is really that the, those those bonds uh, essentially that they have to post have not kept up with the rising cost of drilling. And so, what happens is when these companies go out of business, the state doesn't have the money uh, from the industry to cover the cost of plugging it. And so, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, the difference is made up by the taxpayer. No, that's that that's exactly right. So, you know, we can go on and on about just these two topics alone, but I know you have a heck of a lot more going on in your life. And I want you to tell the listeners about some of the books you've written and some of the stories behind the books and uh, uh, and tell them where they can find the books that you've authored. Well, uh, you know, it, it's it's funny because it, it does act that issue does actually tie into this very topic that we're talking about. So in uh, in 2020, I uh, started my own little publishing company. 
uh, because I had an opportunity to work with a woman named Krista Castaneda, who's a, a Dallas oil and gas attorney. Uh, and she actually ran for the railroad commission, um, and as a Democrat and lost. Um, but, uh, I was working with her because she also represented, uh, T Boone Pickens in a major trial in, uh, in West Texas involving, uh, an oil and gas plant in the Permian basin. And, and the book was called the last trial of T Boone Pickens. Cause it was in fact, the, the last major piece of lit litigation that he was ever involved in. And, um, so we we really wanted to publish this book and 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 at the time Boone was still alive he was not in great health and so we were kind of in a hurry to get it out um and uh unfortunately we didn't we didn't get it out before he passed away but that kind of prompted me to look at a way to you know get the book into print more quickly and so I started this company uh and since then um I've published two more books through that company one was called Deconstructed which looks at the um, the effects of illegal immigration and uh, the construction business. And then I, um, I also published my first novel um, called The Big Empty, which is set in West Texas. Um, and that came out in the, the hardcover came out in 2021. We're actually getting ready to release a, a paperback, an enhanced, enhanced paperback edition, as it were, uh, will be out in September. Um, but in addition to my own stuff, I've also been publishing a number of books by other people as well. Um, uh, mostly with a, a Texas angle to it, you know, a Texas bent, uh, because what we're finding is, uh, you know, the big publishing houses, uh, really aren't taking a lot of regional stuff anymore. And, um, you know, quite frankly, I, I, my very first book that I ever wrote, I published with a New York publisher and I found they don't really have a great understanding of Texas. And so, um, you know, we're really filling a, a kind of a nice little niche there and it's been, uh, it's been an exciting, uh, kind of side project for me. I think we've done, I've done about 10, 10 books altogether uh, that I've published since we started the company and we've got uh, about four or five more in the queue. So um, the company's called Stony Creek Publishing. If you want to check it out, you can go to our website, stonycreekpublishing.com. Okay. And how's, uh, how's that for a subtle, a subtle sales pitch? And that's okay. <laughs> now, so from your website or Amazon, they can find any of your books you publish. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. You can search on my name and uh, and you'll find uh, both the books that Stony Creek has published as well as some of my previous books uh, with other publishers. Well, that's terrific. Uh, well, can you share a little bit about The Big Empty? So The, the Big Empty, it's a novel, um, but it's set in a fictional West Texas town. It's just kind of a, a ranching town that, you know, like many West Texas ranching towns, it's kind of seen it's it you know it's past its prime the town's kind of fading away and the locals are very concerned about what they can do to to sort of revive the economy create a future for the town and ultimately they um they managed to lure a major semiconductor plant uh to the area and uh then it's the the book really kind of takes off looking at the the i guess you'd say the culture clash between the people moving in and the people who've always lived there and it really kind of gets to this idea of, of a sense of place and, you know, wherever people are, they're sort of there for a reason and they do things the way they do for a reason. And so it tries to kind of unpack this idea and how that fits in with the modern world where people don't necessarily have as strong a sense of place and they move around a lot more and, and they may not have those kind of connections. And so it's really kind of told through the two main characters. One is an assistant ranch manager at, the, at this large ranch that, surrounds the town and and the other one is the the manager of the semiconductor plant um that you know he's he's trying desperately to get this thing up and running in a place that's 
not terribly hospitable to to that type of industry. So um, anyway, it was a lot of fun to do. It was really a different kind of writing for me, and I I enjoyed it. And uh, I hope to I hope to write a follow up at some point when I get a little bit of extra time. So <laughs> well, there you go. So the other uh, books that you publish at Stony Creek are they all basically Texas centric or not necessarily? They're not necessarily Texas centric, but they all have a, a Texas connection in one way or another. In many cases, because the authors are here. Um, you know, we published a, a book about um, uh, minor league baseball players called Grinders, uh, taking a look at, at you know, uh, the guys that you never hear about, the guys, the sort of the unsung heroes of, of baseball. And uh, it, it focuses a lot on people that went through the Round Rock Express uh, organization in one at one time or another. Uh, but the author, Mike Caps, is uh, he's an announcer at the ballpark in, in Round Rock and uh, just knows a lot about baseball, has, uh, you know, tons of tons of people he's come in contact with over the years. And so there's not a it, we don't sort of emphasize the Texas connection, but it's there. Right. Mike grew up here. Um, you know, a lot of the players have have Texas connections. And so that's a great example of a book that, you know, um, yeah, it, it, you know, part of the reason we're publishing it is because it is it's really a Texas book even if it doesn't, you know, necessarily tout that in its, uh, you know, in its marketing. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to leave you with this final question. As uh, we've progressed since episode 79 to you, last time you're on to number 196, in that two-year run, or however long it's taken us to have that gap between you being on the show, which is much, we need to have you on sooner than that next time. <laughs> um how do you think the progress of the energy energy transition has been both domestically and in Texas? I, I think there, there has been uh, a lot of progress and certainly that's true in Texas. We've seen, um, you know, obviously a lot more interest in renewables, uh, the way our electricity market is structured uh, despite, you know, everything the legislature keeps trying to do really a lot more incentives at this point to build uh, solar plants and, and the solar arrays and, and wind farms than, um, you know, thermal generation. That's actually a problem for us because we need more thermal generation. We need that baseline, but um, it's been good in terms of uh, building out, uh, you know, solar power in particular. I think we're seeing more of that nationally as well. Uh, so the energy transition continues. I think at the moment we're experiencing a bit of a backlash, certainly here in Texas, where a lot, a lot of our elected officials feel that they can gain political points by trying to sort of sandbag renewables. Um, I think that's short-sighted because if you look at the way the population in the state is growing and what the energy demand is going to be, uh, we're going to need everything we can. And we're we're lucky that we have a lot of different fuel sources in Texas and we need to not be, you know, stymieing particular ones just because we've decided that, you know, our campaign donors don't like them. Um, <laughs> that said, I think the other interesting development in uh, in energy is that we're seeing more and more, and this is particularly true for solar, you're starting to see more people adopting solar at the at the at the home level, I guess you'd say, you know, more people putting solar panels on their house to charge backup batteries in case the power goes out, that sort of thing. And I actually think that is going to be a big role for solar in particular going forward, because it, it can, it can operate on a large scale, but it can also operate on a very, very small scale, like a micro grid or even just a, a single home grid. Um, and so I think that's going to be a huge opportunity uh, as we, we move forward. Um, 
you know, you see more and more people talking about that, like, well, we're not sure if we can rely on the grid, but, you know, solar gives us an opportunity to, to make sure our house has power no matter what happens. Um, I wouldn't underestimate that opportunity. That's going to start appealing to more and more people going forward. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Lawrence Steffi, writer at large for Texas Monthly and author. Check out his, his uh, publishing company called Stony Creek. Did I get that right? You got it right. Stony Creek Publishing. Stony Creek Publishing. And uh, thank you all for joining us today on The Green Insider, Powered Bay Renewable. Uh, for Lawrence Steffi, our guest, I'm Mike Niemer. Have a good day.